As we begin uh, this morning, let's pray before we open the word. Dear Lord, speak to us now. Through the screens to our living rooms, uh, pierce our hearts and prepare us to live in response to what you say to us today. We love you, Lord, and we are amazed that you loved us first. So now uh, teach us so that we can go live differently. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Probably one thing that all of us have experienced is that change is now the norm. We've changed just about every facet of our life. We're changing where we work. We change what we watch. There's no more sports. We've changed how we grocery shop. We've changed uh, how we're worshiping together. We're even changing what we wear. We have daytime pajamas and nighttime pajamas. Change is the norm, but Change often scares people. It it causes people to go, no, 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 I don't want that. There's new problems, new challenges, new things coming up. But I'm here this morning to argue that we need change. Change is good. Can you imagine going to your 20-year class reunion and there's that guy still rocking his letterman jacket, still driving the same car he showed up in 11th grade with, and he's still talking about that catch he made over the middle against your rival high school. Buddy, you need to change. We need to move on. Change is good for us. And I'll show a picture real fast on the screen. Here's me 16 years ago. I think all of us can understand that change is good. Here's a picture from Carla and I's wedding, and I think it's been an extreme makeover marriage edition, seeing how she has changed and helped me become a better version of myself, not only in how I look, but in how I act and treat others. But I'm not the only one who has had great changes. I've found a few church directories laying around here. And let me tell you, we had some fierce mustaches, some really tall hair, and some wardrobe choices that you're so glad you've made changes to. See, change is good. We need to live lives where change is taking place. Our looks, our styles, our attitudes need to change, and that is where I want to sit this morning. My topic, my title, my one phrase, my main point, my thing I need you to take away is all wrapped up into this one phrase. Changed lives live changed lives. See, we need to lean into the fact that if Christ has changed us, we must be living differently. But instead, I fear that we have tamed Christianity. See, we've put it in this cage and we've muzzled the spirit, not allowing it to work its power through us. And instead, we just think of it as a Jiminy Cricket sitting on our shoulder that maybe pricks our conscience every once in a while. See, we've bridled what the bride of Christ is supposed to be doing as God wants to unleash his power through us. And instead, we are now content and happy if we can just show up to worship him on time. We're pleased if maybe we open his word or pray to him every few days. See, we have tamed this idea of Christianity so much so that it doesn't make sense with the Bible and how we live. The Christian life is a life-changing, world-rocking, countercultural way of living, and yet we have boiled it down to and distilled it into this idea that we just don't want to upset or offend anybody. Guys, this is not the Christianity that Jesus set forth. This is not what he called his followers to do. No, he wants 
us to lean into the raw power and purpose and potential that he has placed within us because he has changed our lives. And as a result, it should change how we live, how we act, how we work, and how we go to our schools. We, this morning, need to understand and get a taste of the wild and stop being okay and content in our cages. Because changed lives live changed lives. This morning, our text is Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible right now with you, I want you to press pause. Go grab it and bring it back. I'm not able to read all the verses in our text today, but I want you to follow along with us. All right, you're back. Great. So, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be, but you know we've got to understand what's happened in 1 and 2 before we jump right in. So what has happened? Paul, writing this letter from prison, from quarantine, he writes to the Colossians, and he first starts with a greeting, as he always does, and says he's praying for them. And then in verse 13, or verse 15, excuse me, he jumps into how excellent Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him and through him all things were made, and for him all things exist and are sustained. See, Jesus is this fantastic, uh, godly being who becomes man and the fullness of God dwells within him. And Paul just can't help but write this great prose about him. And then in chapter 2, he transitions and he tells us what this excellent Christ has done on our behalf. He says that while we were dead, he has made us alive. See, he has canceled our debts, he has forgiven our sins, and he has disarmed our enemy. And then he gets to chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, and I need to pause there, because I understand not everybody watching this broadcast today would say they're a Christian. Not everybody that is viewing this this morning would say, yes, my life has been changed, that Christ is my Savior, that He is my Lord, that I have been raised with Him. For some of you, you have just started dipping your toe into Christianity because in the hopeless world, you're looking for something to provide hope. For others of you, you have real and serious doubts about God. And so you, you want to believe, but you struggle to get past these hurdles and obstacles of your faith. Because how can, as good and loving God I read about, allow these terrible things to happen? For some of you, you're drowning in sin and shame. And you, you can't feel that you are saved. You don't believe that you are saved because you understand how vile and how terrible your life is. And I am here to tell you that today there is an opportunity for that. If that is you, then I encourage you to flip back to chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. I encourage you to go to chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and to understand how Christ has spent his life for your sake, that you may be saved. Romans 10, 9 will say that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that we believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead, that we will be saved. You do not have to wait. You do not have to worry. Assurance of faith can be yours today. If that is you, then I encourage you to reach out. We have a connect card in the description below this video. You can get on our website, fbccollegestation.com, and click on any one of our staff and email us, get in touch with us. We want to have that conversation. If there's a friend of yours that you know is a follower of Jesus Christ, reach out because I know they want to share with you the hope they have. Because what we need to understand very clearly is that salvation is for all, not for those that seem to have it all together. 
Salvation rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not on my feeble attempts at perfectionism. See, salvation is a gift we receive, not a status that we earn. And so salvation can be yours. You can be one of the people that are raised with Christ, as he says. But as we jump back into the text, chapter 3, verse 1, If then, or so then, that you have been raised with Christ since then, he gives us four directives of how to live a changed life. He says, first, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he adds on in verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things or the things of the earth. So this morning I want to ask you, where does your heart and where does your mind dwell? Do you dwell in your mind on the problems of the world as you watch the news and become burdened by all the things that are going wrong? Does your heart dwell in fear for your family or for your friends of what could happen? Or where do your heart and your mind dwell? For some of us, it's in very insignificant things. We're worried about, did did we catch up on this show on Netflix or when is football going to come back? For others, it's very serious things that we're dwelling on. On what if I lose my job? How can I continue to pay for this? How can I continue to support my family? What is going to happen with our home? With our How are we going to eat? Where do your heart and your mind dwell? Paul will tell us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, that we must be thinking on whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is uh, commendable, whatever is excellent, Whatever is worthy of praise, this is what we must be thinking about. So I want to give you a test this week. I want you to think about what's the first thing that you think of or the first action you take when you wake up in the morning? Maybe you need to think about it this way. What's the first channel you flip on? What is the first app that you open? What's the first thing that you scroll through to catch up on? Because there we are opening the door for our minds and our heart to dwell on something. Maybe it is you're opening your work email to make sure that the problems you left at 4.50 yesterday haven't erupted into major issues at 7 o'clock. I don't know where you go first, but I do believe that where we go first then shapes how we live in the rest of the trajectory of that day. See, it's no wonder to me that we struggle setting our hearts and our minds on the things that are heavenly when the first door that we open every day is for Anderson Cooper or Sean Hannity to speak into our lives. It's no wonder we struggle to set our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ when we're opening the door for our neighbor to rant about people not wearing face masks every day. See, Where we're opening the door matters. So will you open the door to Christ? When does prayer step into your normal day? Can you make it a priority? Can you make it the first part of your day? That, I think, is the first step in setting our hearts and our minds on Christ. The second uh, directive I think Paul gives us of how to live a changed life, we change lives, set their hearts and their minds on Jesus Christ, and then change lives. It says in verse 5, it says this, Put to death, therefore, 
what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. See, Paul writes in verse 5 to put to death, change lives, put to death, sin. But when I say put to death, you hear, try to stop. Don't, don't do that as much. See, when we hear put to death, we just say put away in our minds. But Paul here is saying very uh, strongly, it must die. It must be eradicated. It must be no more. It cannot survive on life support. It cannot lay comatose in your life. It must die. The way I like to teach this with my students is, I believe that the Bible calls us to take radical steps for the sake of holiness. That we must take these radical steps because I am so tired of taking these pretend steps. These half steps. These little bitty steps that we hope have major impacts because they don't. We've made so many sin resolutions. Oh, I will never do this again. But we don't take radical steps. So what are some radical steps? Radical steps are confessing extramarital activity to your spouse today. Radical steps are flushing the pills that you've become addicted to. Radical steps is deleting that app that is causing you to sin every single day. Radical steps is choosing to join a 12-step group because you cannot fight your addiction alone. Radical steps are tearing down the idols that have been erected for too long in your lives. Radical steps are reaching out and reconciling with those that you have offended. Radical steps are forgiving those who have offended you. Radical steps are laying down these unholy desires and saying, God, I need you to change me. Radical steps may be for some of you to set an alarm and to show up in the Word because your laziness has taken over your life. But here's what I do know. All of us are called to take radical steps. No one is immune. When I think of this phrase, change lives, live change lives, I think it should have fine print that says, radical steps required. But in case you thought you made it through the first list, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, But now you must also put away all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul saying we've got to put off all these things. No one is immune. Nobody, th- nobody is good enough to say, oh, I, I made it through. I don't have to worry about putting anything to death. No, no, no. We all must take radical steps. And when you look at those things in your life that we must put off, I I want you to think of them like that article of clothing you find in the back of your closet. And and you look at it and it's so tattered and ripped and messed up and awful that it's not even worth giving to goodwill. It just needs to be thrown away. It's good for nothing but the trash. Will you take these radical steps? Uh, Change lives live changed lives. They set their mind on things above. They put to death sin. The third one comes in verse 12. Now he's playing on this idea. We put off, now we put on. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here's what we're supposed to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We're to bear with one another. If anybody has a complaint, we're to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us, so we must forgive. And then he adds in verse 14, above all, we need to put on love. I think the NIV uh, really renders this the best as it says, clothe yourself with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Paul is using this language of getting dressed. 
Just like you put on your socks and your shoes. Just like you button the shirt and pull up the pants. We, we are to clothe ourselves with godliness, with Christ-likeness every single day. See, for some of you, this is very normal and natural. It's like putting on your face. You just get up and you live out humility. You're examples to us all. But there's others of us who struggle. You're, you're a lot like my soon-to-be three-year-old Cooper. See, over this shelter-in-place season, we were able to potty train. And potty training, and I say we, it was really my wife, Carlin, that did the potty training, but potty training, maybe because we waited so long, was pretty easy. But a new problem arose. See, he would come out of the bathroom, we would clap for him, and then we would look and we would go, Cooper, where are your pants? Cooper, why do you not have undies on? See, like, he would go to the bathroom, but he didn't want to get dressed. If you don't believe me, ask Cynthia Hopkins. She came over to the house the other day, knocked on the door. Cooper and I answer it. I look down, and Cooper's wearing nothing but a T-shirt. And he's pulling up his shirt and just having a good time. And I'm going, buddy, you got to get dressed. See, uh, when we return back to normal civilization, little man's going to have a tough time going back to what is appropriate. But I don't want you to miss the point I'm trying to make. See, for too many of us, we run around like a toddler, not wanting to be encumbered by putting on our undies or our pants. Not literally, I'm talking about the kindness and humility and love. See, we would rather run around half-dressed around the house, not being told how we are to live because we prefer to live wild and free. But Paul says, no, we got to get dressed. We got to be spiritually dressed, change lives, get dressed spiritually. I've been taking Paul very literally on this. And so when I wake up, I, I lay in bed and, and I think about the day that's ahead. And I go, God, I, I want to put on humility today. God, I, I need patience. Patience has been a big one over shelter in place because I think everybody's getting on everybody's nerves right now. God, I need to put patience on today. Will you and your spirit help me? God, I need compassion. So I encourage you. I've given you a test to figure out where does your mind dwell? What's the first thing you go to? I've given you a challenge to eradicate something from your life, radical step. And then now I want to give you just another step to take. Will you get dressed? Will you consider, we don't just flippantly get dressed. No, we we check the weather app. We look to see what the environment of the day we're about to walk into looks like. And then we decide what to wear. We don't just put a jacket on just to put a jacket on. No, no, no. We look and we go, what problems are going to be coming my way today? Is this person really just getting on my last nerve? Is this person uh, needing to be shown love today? Where have I been arrogant? Where do I need to put that on today? Change lives. Dress for the day ahead. So will you get dressed with me? Change lives, live change lives. Change lives, set their mind and their hearts on Christ. Change lives, put to death the sin in their lives. Change lives, get dressed to live out Christ's likeness and godliness. And finally, verse 17. I know we skipped a few. Read them, they're great. But he adds this, just in case you thought it all, you could sneak through the cracks. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In everything. 
in every facet, in every part, in every little element of your life, you are to live changed, different. You are to live uh, as a new person. When Christ changes us, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that the old is gone, the old has passed away, and the new has come. When, when Christ changes me, when He redeems me, His Spirit then renews me. And this journey of sanctification should lead to Christ's likeness and godliness in my life, that my life should be so changed by the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel message that I cannot help but live differently. I cannot help but do everything, every thought, every word, every deed in His name. To say it as succinctly as I can, anything that is incompatible with godliness and holiness must become incompatible with me. Anything incompatible with godliness must become incompatible with me. The change that takes place in my life must be so radical. It's ugly duckling to beautiful swan level change. My faith should be so obvious And the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life should radically uh, change my whole way of living. How I talk, how I spend, how I treat others, how I work, how I love my family, all must be different because of the change that Christ has made in my life. See, Christians really ought to be the hardest workers. We ought to be the most loving fathers. We ought to be the most patient mothers. We ought to be even the most the best behaved kids. We ought to be the hardest working students, most diligent employees, and the most faithful friends. This is what Jesus desires. Because he didn't just change our life to change our eternity. He changed our life to change our now. That we live differently. See, for too long, we've tamed Christianity. We've treated the work of Christ on our behalf as an insurance policy. We're happy to have it. It costs us a little bit. We then stick it in our back pocket and we walk around just holding on to it just in case we ever need to pull it out. But I think he's calling us to so much more. He wants us to get out of the cage that we've become accustomed to to return to the wild, to return to the gospel power and potential that He puts inside of us. See, we've grown really accustomed to the cage. We like zoo life. People bring us food and water. What do I mean by that? It's it's easy. We can just show up once a week and pretend that we really care about it. If we give a little bit of money, we even are looked on really positively. But but I don't think that's what Jesus called us to do. When he spent his life for our sake, he now calls us to spend ours for his. Not out of a, a way to earn it, no. But in loving response to what he has done. We can't help but live this way. Now, I do want to warn you, this is not a bootstraps mentality. This is not something that I can will, but it is me uh, relenting to the Spirit and allowing the Spirit of God that dwells within me to work and to will, to lead and to guide me into this holiness that He desires for me. 
Change lives. Live change lives. Step out of the prison and go, that, that you think is a paradise, and go live out your life different. You might say on fire. Live out this change life where your mind is set on things above, where your heart is set on things above, where you're uh, radically eliminating sin, where you are clothing yourself with godliness and Christ-likeness, and in everything that you do, you are living that way. So I leave you with this. Has your life been changed? Has Christ really changed your life? And if so, does your life look different? Is it noticeable? What do you do differently because Christ has rocked your world? If we can't think of anything, then are we living changed? Let's pray together. Dear Lord, your text in Colossians 3 pierces. It it hurts. It's not a passive text. It's not a, oh, that was cool to know. No, no, it is a text that demands me live differently. So Lord, help me. Help me reacclimate to the wild. To step out of being tamed and to go and to live on fire for you. Help us to go and to respond because not out of not out of obligation begrudgingly, but out of praise and thanksgiving because our life has been so changed. Lord, we love you. And we only do this because you love us first. So now as we sing of our living hope, as we sing of the change that you have already made, that the cross has spoken, we are forgiven. That that morning came and you rose from the dead. Lord, may that be what we set our minds on today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for how you work in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.